If you would stand with me, we're going to be looking at 1 Samuel 10. Again, when Dr. Milton preaches, he's going through Exodus, and the rest of us are going through 1 Samuel. If it seems a little disorganized, just bear with us. It's a, it's a transitional time, and it's all good. God's Word is all good. And so this morning, this passage in 1 Samuel 10, we're going to cover the whole chapter, but just going to read verses 1 through 8 and then jump to 17 through 27. This is the inauguration, finally, of the king of Israel, their first king, Saul. Beginning in verse 1. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, and that his being Saul, has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek are found. And now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, What shall I do about my son? Then you shall go from there farther and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. After that you shall come to Gibeah Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them, prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. Now to move verse 17. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah, and he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God, who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses, and you have said to him, Set a king over us. Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king! Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship 
And he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor, whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, How can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present. But he held his peace. You may be seated. So in this chapter, as we said, we see the inauguration of Saul, the first king of Israel. And out of curiosity, since for our nation we're soon to come to another inauguration, I just looked up a few facts about inaugurations of presidents of the United States. The shortest inauguration speech was George Washington, 135 words. The longest, Harrison, over 8,000 words, took him two hours. They say it may have contributed to his getting pneumonia and dying soon afterwards. The first inaugural ball, James Madison had that for him. Tickets were four bucks. Inflation, that'd be $78 now. Still relatively cheap when you look at what's uh, coming up for upcoming balls. The first outdoor inauguration was for James Monroe. It would have been indoors, but the House and the Senate argued, couldn't decide on what kind of chairs they wanted indoors. Imagine that, arguing between those groups. The hottest uh, inauguration was for Ronald Reagan, 55 degrees for his first, and then his second one, the coldest, recorded at seven degrees. And then finally, there are a number of inaugurations that have both a private ceremony and a public ceremony. The reason being, if it falls on a Sunday, the date, the 20th of January, often was the case, they would have a private one, then the next day have a public one. In this passage, we have that kind of thing. We have a private ceremony at the beginning and a public one at the end. That's not so much the big deal is. The big deal is this is a radical change. This inauguration is a radical change for all of Israel going from priest and prophet to now incorporating a king into the ruling structure. For good or for bad, we're going to see what that brings about. But the big idea, to make it plain and simple, is this. Though government, though human rulers come and go, they change, God's providence, God's po passionate pursuit of his people persists. That's the providence that we're going to see here. And you'll see also in your notes, just a quick outline, calling this the ABCs of providence. As I go through a passage, I try to wrap my head around it, get an outline, maybe an acrostic together helps me. Now, if you think that's a little contrived and forced when pastors do that, when they preach and make the outline, it's an acrostic. Here's kind of defense of that. If you look often in the Psalms in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew, not that you need to read the Hebrew, just take my word for it, many of the Psalms start with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, then the second letter, then the third letter. Okay, Psalm 119 does that, Psalm 25. What's the point of that? They were meant as teaching tools, that they were organized that way. So, if you've got a preacher, pastor who wants to do an acrostic, they've got a little defense on their side to do that, so bear with them. So, our first part of the sermon is this. If you look at the first verses, the authentication of God's promise, a providence, the authentication of God's providence. 
there were three signs for Saul that Samuel gave, really in a sense four if we count the anointing itself. Samuel anoints Saul with oil, olive oil, that sets him apart from, for office, and it's saying, this is important, you're set apart, you're blessed, something big is coming up for you. Even though Israel shouldn't have asked for a king at all, they shouldn't have asked that because they asked with the wrong motive, Saul is given every opportunity to succeed. He's, gi he's given blessing here. Then he's given three other authentications that Samuel points out here. And this is kind of like Gideon. If you think back in the, in the period of the judges, Gideon asked for sign after sign. He probably should have trusted God from the get-go, but he asked and God gave him signs. God is giving Saul many signs, many authentications. Authentications, we see those in our everyday life as well. Simply, if you have a driver's license, that's, that's proof, that's authentication, that you are who you say you are. When you go to an ATM machine, you have a pen and a card that's saying, I have the authentication to get this money out of there. In the future, with all the identity theft, we're likely to see more and more of that kind of thing, whether it's retina scans, biometrics of fingerprints, all that stuff is going to become more and more prevalent. All of that is authentication that we see in our society today. This is Old Testament. Did we see that in the New Testament? Sure. When Jesus would do a miracle, when he would do a healing, there was, there was a compassionate side to that where he is helping that person. But he is also authenticating and proving, I am the Son of God. I am the Messiah. I am coming in truth. I am coming as a Savior. So these signs that Saul received, they were specific they were meant to assure him they weren't just general vague things like when you leave here you're going to meet somebody no they were specific things that god was in his providence bringing about what about us today do we get this kind of authentication this kind of sign in a sense yes the passage that blair read in second peter one it says that we have the word of god made more sure we have more of the Bible than Saul had, than Samuel had. We have the perfect, inerrant, authenticated Word of God to guide us, direct us, and help us and encourage us. As Thomas Watson said, faith makes us walk, but assurance will make us run. We have the assurance of God's Word as being faithful, as being true, as giving us blessing upon blessing. So in this passage, after Saul is given the, this list of assurances, of authentications that he's going to receive. In verse 7, we're going to key in on this verse. Samuel tells Saul something else. He says, when these signs meet you, after you've received all these authentications, do whatever your hand leads you to do, for God is with you. You will have power. Do what you feel called to do. Often now we say, do what, do what the Spirit leads you to do. Samuel is giving Saul that freedom. Do what your, the Spirit leads you to do. But then in verse 8, and remember that verse 7, because it's going to show up as a bit of a problem in verse 10. But in verse 8, Samuel says, but let me give you a boundary. Let me give you a constraint. Let me give you a restriction. You need to wait for me. After you do what the, the, the Lord leads you to do, wait for me at Gilgal. I'm going to come and offer burnt sacrifices. Wait for me seven days. 
You don't go off of the sacrifices. I do. That's not your role as king. Saul was going to have trouble with that later. So in these two verses, we have what looks like a little bit of a conflict. And if you look at any, we'll say, critical, focusing on critical biblical commentary, when it goes through this passage, it's going to look at those two verses and say, look at this contradiction. One case you have, do whatever you want to do, and in this case here, you have this, wait, don't do what you whatever you do. The Bible's full of errors. What happened here was some later editor came and put this passage here, a different storyline with this one right here. It's a contradiction. And it's kind of like in the Proverbs, where you have the two verses where it says, answer a fool according to his folly. Don't answer a fool according to his folly. And the critics will say, oh, look at that, the Bible's got errors, it's got problems. And you want to just say, do you really think the, the authors of the Bible are, are idiots? That they, they put these things together and they didn't realize this sounds contradictory? Yes, it sounds like that, but there's an answer. God in his sovereignty knows there's an answer. With the one with the Proverbs, there's an easy answer to that. In this case, the answer is this. God, through Samuel, to Saul, in putting these two together, is marrying together some important things. And that's this. We see the same kind of thing happen where you're given freedom, but then boundaries. Let's just go back to the garden. What did God tell Adam and Eve? You can do whatever you want to do. You can eat whatever you want, but don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Had they obeyed that, would they would have remained free. They wouldn't have died. But because of their sin, because they thought, oh, this is the way to really be free, to go and take what we shouldn't take, they received the opposite. They became enslaved to their desires. They became enslaved to their sins. They became enslaved to their fears. And they were, in fact, then trapped because they didn't heed that boundary. So Saul is given a test. Do whatever, but wait for me. There's a boundary. Example of that in the early days of progressive education. There was a theorist who said that the children, they need more freedom. So what we're going to do is, out in the schoolyard here, that chain length, chain length fence, chain link fence, we're just going to take it down. The children need more freedom. So the children went out at recess, and all they could do was huddle up in the middle of the schoolyard. They were scared. We didn't have a boundary anymore that kept us safe. So they all just huddled in the middle. The realization being that God's law and boundaries help to give us freedom. You experience that also if you ever drive down a mountain road. If there's that cliff down on the other side, thousand feet down, what do you do? You drive slow all the way away from it. But as soon as there's a guardrail there, a boundary, you feel free to go a bit faster. I'm safe. I'm free. So again, God gives us freedom with boundaries. Boundaries give us freedom. And that's what Saul was being given. He was saying, you're going to be able to do many things, but follow my rules towards life, Saul, and it will go well for you. So in a sense, we're seeing put together God's passion, a passion and a truth. And you could say this, if you were to answer this question, what's more important, being passionate or being truthful? You realize, okay, that's a trick question, right? They're both important, absolutely. If all you have is truth, you're just going through the motions. If all you have is passion, 
with no truth, then that's chaos. Again, God is putting these two together in his economy. They never work in opposition. They actually work perfectly together. And in our lives, if we feel I am being tugged or pulled in this direction, all passion, no truth, beware. If I'm getting dry, all truth, no passion, beware. They go together. Now Saul, he gets this counsel from God through Samuel. He heads on. But it says, it's this interesting thing, it says, when he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. What does that mean that Saul received another heart? In the New Testament, when we hear that, being given a new heart, we think uh, uh, becomes a Christian. They're regenerated, a new heart. But in context, in the Old Testament, that was likely not the case with Saul. Similar to Samson, if you think, remember back with Samson, that the Spirit would come upon him, and he would do some mighty works from God, and then the Spirit would leave because he had done that task. Same thing for Saul. Spirit comes upon him, enables him to do some great things, and then leaves. But for us, we need to beware of that. Just to think, you've, you, so many of us experience the Lord's blessing and answered prayer an encouragement, a conviction. When God touches us in that way, we need to make sure it's not a vaccine where we get a little bit of it and then I don't want any more. I'm okay now. That's dangerous. If we get that hardened heart, then we could be like Saul. Indeed, we want the real thing. We want the real thing, not the vaccine. Something that strikes us about Saul as we're going to continue to study him is Where's the relationship? Where's the relationship with God? Where's the prayer? Where's even maybe a psalm or something like that? David, great sinner, but boy, he had a heart for God. He's convicted. He's changed. He pours out his heart to God because he has a relationship with God. We don't see that with Saul. We don't see him praying. We don't see him engaging in relationship. Now in verse 10, remember I said verse 7 was important. Here's what happens in verse 10. The, 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 the sign comes true. The authentication comes true. There's Saul. He prophesies with the prophets. But what did Samuel tell him to do? When this happens, do what your hand leads you to do. What was likely supposed to happen was he was supposed to go fight the Philistines. God had appointed him to free his people. It looks like he was passive there and didn't do what he was supposed to do. Okay, so question mark in verse 10, was this a whoops where he was not passionate in going forth and doing what his hand had led him to do? On a humorous note in verse 11, when he prophesies, what, what do the people say? They come up with actually what's a proverb. This proverb, is even Saul among the prophets? What's he doing? It's like they're saying, here's this young guy, he never went to Hebrew vacation Bible school, and now he's out there prophesying. What in the world's going on? Is even Saul among the prophets? So they would use this proverb later when something odd would happen, something amazing, kind of like ours, when, when pigs fly. This is just crazy that Saul's among the prophets. Once that happens, there's a bit of a gap in time. Okay, and then we move to the important part of the passage here, the, uh, uh, verse 17. Samuel gathers all the people together at Mishpah. Now here's what we want to realize. 
If you're one of the people there who's being gathered, you're not thinking necessarily this is an inauguration ceremony. Gathered at Mishpah, there was judgment that had happened last time they were there. So let's see how they think about this, how even Saul thinks about this. Samuel's inauguration speech here to kick things off is even shorter than George Washington's. It is very short, and it's not a rah-rah, God is on our side, we can go get those Philistines, let's go get them. In fact, Samuel is quite harsh, and if he were to ever give that speech again, they probably would have run him out or fired him for being critical, not politically correct, not diverse. Worse than praying in Jesus' name at a sporting event nowadays. What he did was pretty dangerous on his part, the way he called them out. He basically told them, look, God has blessed you over and over and over, and look what you've done. You've rejected him. It's not so bad to ask for a king, but the way you did it, you said, we want one like the other nations, which meant we don't want a relationship with you anymore, God. We want to be like everybody else. That's what we want. And that is what Samuel was calling them on. And then he says, come up here, and we're going to deal with this. And there's an amazing paradox that comes out of this as far as what they're asking for, what they're given. So some see this as actual the punishment. They ask for a king. He calls them out, says, look what you've done. And the next step is he goes about giving them a king. You would have thought it'd be, I'm going to call down fire and brimstone on you. But he says, okay, let's do something with lots here. Let's do something with lots. Because they had their plan on how they wanted a king. Okay, the Israelites had their plan, foolproof plan, but as Douglas Adams says this, he says, a common mistake that people make when trying to, des to design something completely foolproof is to underestimate the ingenuity of complete fools. Okay, so God's not going to let the Israelites follow their completely foolishness. He says, I'm going to architect this. I'm going to choose my man. And we're going to do this by lots. And the way they likely did that was this. Uh, the priest would have a breastplate. And within that breastplate, he would have two stones, okay, called the Urim and the Thummim, perfection and lights. And basically, it was as simple as you ask a question, pull out a stone, God provides the answer as a yes, no, by which stone is pulled out. So, Lord, is it coming from the tribe of Judah? No. Is it coming from the tribe of Benjamin? Yes. Okay, so let's drill in on the, the tribe of Benjamin. Let's go through each of the clans. So yes, no, yes, no. They find the, 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 the uh, clan of the Merites. And eventually they land on the man, drum roll, boom, 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 is Saul by pulling out all these stones. Okay, so that's what happens there. Now, for us, we might think about the same kind of thing. You know, I wish God would give me his will in the same way. Close all these 19 doors, boom, 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 perfectly, and open just that one door. I know the will of God. I should marry Sally and not Sue. I should buy the car and not the truck in this model, not that model. And God answered just like that with those lots. Okay? But in reality... Is that the way that, not to say that doesn't happen sometimes, but as far as normality, as far as the way God normally works, what does he say? It's more like 
with music, the, the chords, the keys, the beauty of a song, rather than just these specific individual notes. God says in the Proverbs, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding, and he will direct your path. He's about the relationship amidst all those choices, rather than just help me get the right choice just right. That's often how God works. But in this case, okay, in this case, God was making it clear that this is the sovereign choice that I'm going to make in this case. So they pull the lot, and it's Saul. But where is Saul? He's hiding. He's hiding in the baggage. Now, this is probably not a bunch of Samsonite rollerboards, okay? That's not what was meant by baggage. It's probably some armor is likely what this is. He's hiding amongst the armor. Now, why was he hiding? Could have been out of fear that he was going to get killed. Because the last time they did this, back in the time of Joshua, when they pulled the lots like this, it was because a man named Achan had stolen a bunch of stuff and his whole family got killed. So, so Saul's probably figuring, whoa, this could be bad news for me. Okay? Now, more likely, he should have trusted in what Samuel had called him out, that he was going to be the king. But that may be why he was hiding. We don't know for sure. But it looks like, again, a little bit of that passivity on Saul's part, that he's staying back, hiding. So the people have to bring him out. Okay? The people have to bring him out. Samuel presents him. Here is Saul. You know what Saul's name means for? Asked for. Here is the one you have asked for. God chose him. Now you can see a lot of the people probably sitting there thinking, this? This is the guy we get? He's hiding. I think in the movie Night at the Museum where Kamen Ra says, in his lisping voice, he says, this? This is your rescue? That's probably what they're thinking. This guy? He's hiding back there. But no, Samuel says, this is the one that God has called. Okay? Then there's this interesting side note in verse 25. What happens next? Samuel goes and gets out the law. And what he's doing is he's actually going back to Deuteronomy 17. If you have a minute, turn there. Just want to point out something from Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 through 20. Make note of this. Deuteronomy uh, 17, verse 14. This is before this took place. It was back when they're putting the law together. In verse 14, God says, When you go into the land, you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me. Whoa. God knew this was coming. And he said, When you do that, even though you shouldn't, here's what you need to do. And in that passage, he lays out three things to watch out for. Boundaries, again, for the king. Those boundaries that are laid out in there are these. Don't let the king acquire a lot of horses, like they did in Egypt. He's saying, don't build up horses and chariots in an army. Why? Because I'm the one who goes out and fights for you. Saul messed up on that one later. Don't let your king get a bunch of foreign wives, Solomon. Don't acquire too much gold, Solomon. All these things will take your king's heart away from the Lord. The king is not almighty. God is over the king. God's word supersedes the king. Samuel was letting them know the king was not truly sovereign. God was. 
So as we move to the end of the passage, Samuel sends him home. Here's the new king. He's, he's sent home, basically. Go on home. He doesn't go to the, the palace or anything. Go on home to Gibeah. Okay? Showing again who's really in charge here, God and his word. But there's two groups of people. What happens when Samuel sends Saul away? The men of valor. The men of valor. What's a man of valor? Valor is absence of indecision. It's boldness. It's determination in the face of great danger. These men say, that man, that, that, he's, he's been appointed by God. I see some problems with him. He's God's man. I'm going with him. I'm going to step out and follow him. Maybe dangerous, but he is the one that God has called. Saul is not perfect. He's the one chosen. I'm going with him. And there was value in that because we're going to see later that they go into battle along with Saul. So these men of valor are clearly called out as doing a good thing. There's a second group. We're called worthless men, literally sons of Belial. We actually heard that term back in chapter 2 of Eli's sons who were worthless, sons of Belial, sons of the devil. There's so many connections in this book, and this is one of them, just saying these guys are worthless. Why were they worthless? Because of what they did with the Lord's anointed. Basically, in that group, you'd have all kinds of folks. You'd have some who were skeptics. They'd say, I doubt anything's ever going to come of good of that guy. Complainers. What's in it for us to follow him? Is he any better than us? Fault finders. This problem, this problem, this problem, but no solution. I'll just point out a bunch of faults. They were ultimately kind of like the peanut gallery. You ever heard the, the peanut gallery in the, the old theaters where they, all they could afford were just the cheap seat tickets and they'd hurl insults, peanuts, whatever at the performers and just make fun of them. Back in, in baseball games, baseball, you, you know, it can get so harsh with the guys on the bench who just hurl insults out at the players. We used to call them the peanut gallery because they can't get out here and do any, any better, but they can sure hurl some insults out at the players. That's what these guys were doing. They were just complaining, wouldn't go with the Lord's anointed, stay on the side. Saul kept his peace. Saul kept his peace. Now, can't read too much into that. Not sure. Was that good because he was taking their insults and not doing anything about it? Or was it that he was being passive again? Not sure. But we can say this for sure. We, looking back on this, looking at the reality that there was a king who, who was yet to come, in this passage pointing to him, who would not be like all the other nations. God appointed him just as God had anointed and appointed Saul. He would be mocked much more than Saul was ever mocked. And yet he bore their baggage, he bore my baggage, he bore your baggage. We don't, we don't enthrone Jesus. God does. God enthroned Saul in this way. God enthrones Jesus as his perfect king. And in his providence, he has done that. And so we can respond in faith 
to that. What, what, what's our call? What's our application this morning as far as that goes? Will we be, in a sense, a man or a woman of valor, okay, who doesn't just sit on the sideline and mock? One who takes initiative when there's a problem, seeks not just to find problems, but let me help, let me find a fix. Whether it's with the church, whether it's in my family, whether it's with uh, parenting, whether it's just in a relationship with a friend, whether it's a job, may I be someone of valor who applies, who walks with the Lord in relationship and seeks to help and not be one who just stays on the side and mocks and tears down. May we be that type of person. Will you pray with me? Lord, again, your word is true. Your word is applicable. Whether it's thousands of years ago, with Samuel, Saul, the Israelites, and they're dealing with this new change towards having a king just as reliable and true and applicable to each of us here. Father, that we want to rest on Christ who has taken our baggage nailed it to the cross, applied it, paid for it, for those of us who are mockers, myself included, those of us who can be skeptical, rather than saying, God, you are working and you are using all things for good because of your providence, because of your passionate pursuit of us. Thank you, Jesus, for that. In your name we pray. Amen.